Hi. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Following Films Podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and into the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today we're joined by cinematographer Steve Holleran to discuss his work on Nicolas Cage's latest film, Sympathy for the Devil. The film follows a man who, after being forced to drive a mysterious passenger at gunpoint, finds himself in a high-stakes game of cat and mouse where it becomes clear that not everything is as it seems. But before we dive into our conversation with Stephen, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. There's always something truly wonderful to, to discover. Have you followed the following films podcast on Spotify? If you have, well, thank you. If you haven't, head over to Spotify, search for following films, and give us a follow. It really does help the show. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen about Sympathy for the Devil. The film will be available exclusively in theaters on July 28th. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. I think that this is one of those movies that it's it's always exciting to me to see when you're pushed into a corner, when you have really limited storytelling where most of this is in a car and then a good piece of it is in a diner and a parking lot. It's kind of those, you know, there's a little bit more than that, but you really just have these two central locations for most of the film, the, you know, the meat of it here. And to see what you do within that is always fun for me that when you can, you know, there's, there's a couple of movies that have done this that have been solely in a car or, you know, there's one that's literally just in a coffin and to see how you can make that visually um, engaging is always interesting to me. So I'm wondering if that's something that you were thinking about when you take this story on just sort of the limited scope of the storytelling here. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to dive into that uh, quick, quick thing before, before we do uh, the movie yeah. hasn't come out yet. It doesn't no, of course. Yeah. Until- the end of July. So I just want to make sure that whatever we're doing here, we kind of got to keep under wraps until of course. It, it'll uh, all time this release to then. So yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Otherwise I'd get in trouble. We don't want that. Um, <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. So yeah, to talk a little bit about that. Um, yes. Reading the script, I saw that it was very limited in terms of locations and at least on the page in terms of scope. That doesn't mean that when you, shoot it you can't lend a lot of scope to what's happening and i always like fresh challenges when i take on a movie i don't like to repeat myself i also like to do things that push me creatively and so reading a script about you know two guys in a car at night outside vegas was instantly like oh this is going to be challenging you know i'm going to have limited light I'm going to have to deal with the car for most of the movie. Um, and then on my second call, I believe, with the production, while we were still interviewing for the job, they asked me, do you have LED volume experience? We were going to shoot this whole movie on a volume. And I did have some volume experiment, uh, experience from commercial work, but I'd never done it for a, for a whole movie, particularly with a car. You know, that's a, just a monumental task to make it look authentic for, say, 60, 60 minutes of runtime or 50 minutes of runtime that the movie's in the car. 
So that instantly was, oh, this is an even bigger challenge than I thought, which was on one one hand scary and on the other hand very exciting. And I tend to be drawn to to projects like that uh, as as a filmmaker and a storyteller. Um, and so that's that's why I got involved and, and those were my initial thoughts around doing a car movie. And when did you land on very specific colors for this film? Because it has, uh, with a story like this, I think there's certain things you would e- expect there to be, but this actually has, there's this sort of like baby blue color that seems to come up a lot in this and these pinks and different colors that you would, a story like this, you wouldn't necessarily associate those with it. And it felt like it's tying into sort of the emotional state of the character and what he's going through on this very specific night. Yeah. So, I mean, our main character is assumed to be father. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a baby coming. So we're instantly thinking about pinks and blues. And at the same time, Vegas has a certain set of bright fluorescent colors. And I was living down near the strip for the shooting of the movie. So every night I would, I, I would drive through and I would see, you know, these electric fluorescent greens and, sort of like off off color bright oranges and reds <clears throat> and so we thought we thought about those colors um and then a week before production nick cage dyed his hair red <laughs> um and so that that was a bit of a surprise for the production uh when i saw the pictures i just and i instantly loved it. it it was it's so arresting of the color and, and it was such a bold choice i thought oh the, you know he's going to be bringing the heat um on set and so that that impacted um some lighting choices as well so i was like okay green is going to be big red is going to be get uh be big as well and we're dealing with this battle between good and evil or perhaps evil and evil um what you know what's right what's wrong what's real what's not real who's telling the truth who's not and you know red and green is always that great bicolor paradigm you have stop you have go you have you know you have star the star wars uh, you know green green <laughs> yeah. for the jedi red for the sith kind of thing uh so we we mapped that into the into the movie as well particularly in the diner um and it, it, you know the driving the driving stuff wanted more than just say sodium vapor lights Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to do, we looked at a mov- movies like Locke and we looked at, you know, a movie like Collateral and they, they both have specific looks and they're, they're very like one to two tone looks. And since this was the Vegas film, I thought, what would it be like if there's a kaleidoscope of colors, like almost a, like a rainbow light moving through, uh, the car. So you'll see pinks and magentas and, and, yellows and greens and whites like flashing through the car in, in a good good chunk of of the movie and, and we did that specifically well and it's it is that tied to specific geography when you're thinking this through or are you just playing with those more in the the scene emotionally what's going on because it felt like there's times when you're showing the outside of the world but then you know and these very specific colors are coming through but then there's other times when um it's not clear to me uh, I don't live in Vegas. I don't know Vegas very well, so I don't know how honest the geography is here. Um, but is that something you're thinking about? They would be at this point, and I'm seeing this light coming through at this time. 
Uh, yeah, so it was both. Okay. We were pretty specific in terms of mapping a route out of the city for the film. Mm. Like it, it starts in Vegas and it moves out into the desert uh, by the end. The, the issue with that is as you get out into desert at night outside Vegas, it's just black. There's yeah. nothing there. There's no practical lights to motivate from. There aren't even street lights. It's just black. So some of it we had to kind of create. And as the movie leaves the diner in the second half of the film, uh, you know, we were pushing into this world of, of a kaleidoscope of colors where the characters are revealing their real truths and they were touching into a bunch of different uh, colors to reflect that the truth could live anywhere at that moment. Um, and so we had some creative freedom there. We had to do something. Um, and I thought that was reflective of, of their this inner state that the two were going through. So, yeah, there's a bit of both. Absolutely. And could you talk a little bit about um, the diner sequence here? Um, cause I, I will wait until this is out. Obviously don't want to give anything away, but watching how full tilt Nick cage goes here in that sequence specifically where, and it's just this ability that he has to go to 10 back to two in one moment is just, un- nobody else does it the way that he does. And it's something I think that either you're fully on board for, or it's something that you push back against. But for me, you know, I'm 46 and saw wild at heart, very young. So that particular style that he brings to it is something that's kind of etched into my DNA and something that I really love watching. Uh, could you talk about maybe sitting behind the lens and watching a performance like that in the moment? Yeah, I, I would love to. Our week in the diner um, was pretty exciting uh, in terms of performance in particular. We knew going in that the script had some meat to it in the diner like there's a lot of a lot of high drama and stakes that develop there uh, but we didn't quite know you know what nick and joel were going to do in the diner per se at what level uh the intensity of their performance was going to be and day one i was shooting the table the the opening of the tabletop scene where they're where they're talking to each other uh across the, the dining table and nick just started bringing this 100 percent performance and i'm sitting about a foot away from him and once in a while on a movie set you can just tell that you're recording something at least in my opinion it was fairly iconic and unforgettable yeah, i agree and everybody felt it on set and everybody's stood up straight and everyone leaned in and everyone suddenly was like, Oh, we're making a movie <laughs> because up until then we were shooting all these pieces of, of uh, the exterior work of the movie. And we had been plagued by really difficult shooting conditions, like four hours of monsoons every night that would, that would cut all this time out of, out of the shoot. And it had been quite a struggle. So once we were in the diner, we're like, okay, we're safe. We have a roof over our heads. Uh, uh, it was, you know, it was like 115 degrees outside and pretty hot in the diner as well. And then Nick Nick comes in with this performance and we were all just floored and it just ratcheted up every day. And we knew we had some iconic moments in there. Like we had, we had a dance sequence. Uh, we had a little wonder. We had, you know, we had some other things uh, as well. And so from that point on, we, we had a feeling that something special was happening. 
Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of that came down to his interpretation of the character. And I, I was, I was pretty, pretty odd to be honest. Oh, and I, and it's one of those things that you, I think it can often be overshadowed when you have a performance like that, but it really does work because of Joel. It's that interplay that makes that he's giving the frame to him in those moments. He's not trying to take anything away from him. And if it was, if he was commenting on the performance or not, it's his belief in that moment that makes it work. Because if Joel doesn't believe in that moment, then it does fall flat. And I think that's often what happens in these types of films or moments like that, where you can have somebody that does go really big, but it's the scene partner that really makes these things work as well. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, Joel's an incredible actor and, you know, he's playing like the straight man to Nick's crazy yeah. most of the movie, you know, why without spoiling the ending. Um, and, that, and that's really important uh, when you're getting a performance like that. And some of it, I mean, at least for, for me and the crew, some of it was, some of it I believe is just natural. Like we're, we're all in a bit of shock that, of what was happening and what we were recording because you know when you roll the first take on a, on a scene you don't always know what kind of performance you're going to get particularly on an indie movie like that where we we hadn't spent any time in rehearsals with the actors so we were kind of seeing everything fresh in the moment um and it everyone's performance cast and crew was ratcheted up because of because of nick, what nick was doing in my opinion and you touched on something with the with the ending that I don't obviously want, even when this is out, I don't want to ruin that part of it. But to me, it feels like there's really um, one way to read this film. I, and I'm I'm assuming people will come at this from a different angle than I am. But um, I, I'm wondering how much of this is open to interpretation. Do you see people kind of reacting to this? Is this more of a reflection on the individual viewer or um, how much room for interpretation do you think there is in this film? I think there's a fair bit of room for interpretation around what's right and what's wrong. Okay. Who's good. Who's evil. Uh, the, the, heritage of violence sure. and um, revenge and what seeking revenge can do to an individual or individuals and that you know our actions have repercussions that that follow us right so without spoiling the ending as well, as well i i would say there's a lot of room for people to to question you know who is the devil who's who's in the right who's in the wrong are they both wrong are they both right uh, and, and then question our own decisions with, with, with ethics and choices that we make. I think that's what's fun about the ending. It leaves it a bit open. And I like that because I like movies that make me continue to question life. It's one of the reasons I, I jumped on the movie. So. Oh, no. And it's, it's, I'm sure that would happen. It's just that I felt very early on, not the exact plot of how this was going to work itself out in the end, but the, we were clearly dealing with a history here and what that was coming to and what our main character, our protagonist, that it wasn't, there was going to be more gray here than, you know, I think early on you see that there's something that he's bringing to this, that um, there's baggage here that we're going to have to deal with throughout this film. And so I think that's where I was coming from and that element of it. That, that that part of it did not feel ambiguous to me at all, that it felt like on this night there was 
the both the literal and figurative demons that would be wrestled with if that makes sense yeah i think that's the that's the whole process and and the journey is you know two men with demons with a history who who come together and one's trying to pull the truth out of the other or what he thinks the truth is and you know what the journey is about is is finding out what what really happened uh it in some ways and you know some of it is still left gray uh which i think is is a strong part of the movie the movie's also supposed to just be like kind of a crazy wild ride and and some like you know bonkers fun so i don't <laughs> want it us to... No, 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 no. There's a lot of fun here. This is not, this is an yeah. easy set. This is something that, I mean, it, it's intense. It's uh, funny. It's nerve wracking, but it's something that in the end, there has a little bit more going on than the surface level of it just being sheer joy, uh, sort of exploitation filmmaking. It definitely is playing with that and wears that very comfortably on its sleeve, but it also has a little bit more going on to the surface, which are my favorite types of films, ones that do play in the those genres, but they also just have a little bit more going on. And it's not a, I feel comfortable enjoying this film. It doesn't feel like a dirty pleasure. <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, thinking about those two tones, that was, that was something the director and I spent some time thinking about when it came to the visuals is, is how can we straddle those, oh, this line of, of a movie that's, wild and bonkers and supposed to be a bit tongue-in-cheek and at the same time deal with these very serious uh themes that are running beneath it that are, come out at the end in, in a pretty dark way uh and so i think that's why you saw some of the stronger color choices but some of the some of the camera camera movement was was reduced or refined Mm -hmm. um and more simple in order to straddle the line between those two tones because we knew from the beginning that the, that that was an area that the movie could excel in or fail in and so it was a bit of a, a balancing act well you do there's something that happens really early on in the film that caught me that i really enjoyed that it felt like something that was from you know I, I, the french connection or something like that when you have the, they make a turn suddenly and the camera is almost like it's not keeping up with them. So it has to whip around to follow them, go down this path. And it gives a sen an sense of speed that it's not just a camera mounted on the side um, that's shooting. You have those, these internal cameras, but you also pull out and have these moments in it that just feel very frenetic at times. And they have this intensity and speed to them. And I think it's something that really does add to this movie. Just when you you sparingly pull out of the film uh pull out of the interiors and it feel, and it's done in a way that it's not overdone it's just these little flourishes that come in every once in a while that there is restraint being shown here which you don't often see uh, or you might not r readily recognize it that there is a, a gentle hand here at play in a lot of ways oh that's that's great that came across um for a variety of reasons, we wanted to spice moments of the movie with that freneticism because Nick's character is hot and cold all the way through the movie. He's he's yeah. very silent, then he's very moody and dark, and then he's out of his mind, and you, you never can really 
catch up with him. And so we wanted to put some of that into the visual work. We also knew that shooting a car on a, mostly on a volume reduces your ability to create this frenetic drama with, with the camera. We, we only had one day on the road to shoot exteriors of the car. So we had to be pretty specific about how we saw the car. Um, Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookman's. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookman's, I found a copy of the 1946 film Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time, captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature. The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. And how the camera interacted with it. And I, I did particularly like that big right turn that we do in the movie. That that's sort of like the turn, the turn to madness, in in my opinion, the, you know, the turn from reality to insanity. And so that was a that was a big thing was to show the the car driving away from from camera. No, uh, absolutely, and that and that does come across. It has that everything that happens after that does feel you lose your grounding at that point that you are in a different reality uh from there on throughout the rest of the film and it's something that does it's not like fever dream logic or anything like that but it does it 
there is a tonal shift at that moment in the film that really does change. And it's everything from not just Nick, but Joel also his performance does change after that moment. And then obviously when you build and get to the diner sequence, which did you expect that you'd be working with so much fire again, or was that something that you wanted to take a break from fire with your history? I thought maybe you'd never want to see another fire again. Yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I think having spent so much time around wildfires in particular, I don't ever want to see them, but at the same time, it's, it's such an, it's such a marvelous force when you see it in real life that there is a bit of you that, that wants to see it again, kind of like maybe giant waves, the same thing with giant waves, where it's just so inspiring that you, you pinch yourself that it even happens. So on this movie, yeah, it was pretty funny that there was a lot of fire again, at least after the diner sequence. Um, and that, that actually wasn't in the script that, that was added, uh, in conversation between myself and the production designer and the director to level up the whole, um, parking lot scene and at some point we're like why don't we just burn it all down <laughs> and that's <laughs> technically what happened but let's take uh, the figurative yeah. descent into hell and make it quite literal yeah and then and then how do we use the like a simple parking lot and a couple semi trucks and and turn it into a, a whole little fight sequence uh that had to stay contained just because we only had a day to do it um but could make, make us feel like we we're dropping into hell that when, was the goal and it gives you all this smoke that you can play off and all the light and everything. And it just gives it such an interesting feel that whole sequence. And I'm wondering how much of that is real fire though, because digital fire is usually, or at least in up until very recently has been pretty bad for the most part. And this felt like it was real fire to me. I'm not sure if that was the case or not. So everything that you see inside the diner is uh visual effects fire with practical. Well smoke. done. Thanks. Thanks. Well, you know, spend a little bit of time around fire. So um, a lot of it's lighting, practical lighting effects inside that mimic a fire source. And, you know, as the LED technology has developed, we've been able to do an even better job of, of, of mapping dynamic uh, fire and color into the lights, which is great. And then we just dropped some smoke in and the rest we did in post. But outside, most of it is real. So okay. we had flame bars. We had stripped out cars and a stripped out uh, RV and we had flame bars in all of them. And so we lit them up uh, various times through the night while we were shooting the sequence. So a lot of that's real fire. We also had a pretty big um, like fire lighting rig with like 25 uh, lights that were mapped into a DMX board. And my, my gaffer was managing that and giving us this, this big fire push from one side of the parking lot. And then we dropped in a lot of our own smoke um but yeah there were a couple moments where those the fires weren't out of control but the cars caught on fire in ways that uh you know the special effects wasn't expecting and so they were actually melting to the ground oh my god and so some of it was some of it was quite practical and and actually quite uh exciting (laughs) put it that way yeah well i mean once fire something that just it does not want to be contained as you are well aware it wants to move and live and take control and it's something that if it gets out of there it's so difficult to pull in that my god yeah but it's it's really interesting that the diner stuff that you're the way you're talking about that because i think that's something that's always 
made it until very recently until now has made it unbelievable is the way that the light reacts to it in the room that it's not it doesn't have that feeling it's you could get the flames looking right sometimes but then what is that doing to the rest of the lighting it just felt like a layer that was being added on it felt like it was absolutely a part of the room here which was very surprising to hear this now if anything i thought that might have been a little bit reversed so i guess maybe my eye isn't what it used to be it's great to hear uh yeah i mean it's all about thinking how does fire like start for instance because we showed igniting in the kitchen what that does to exposure and what that does to the surfaces around it and then you also have to think about in which direction is the fire like projecting its light in terms of what the camera sees and putting your own light on that if you're not going to have actual fire on set so that was what we did in the diner and then that that big shot you see of Nick and Joel walking away from the parking lot at the end, and there's an RV behind yeah. them. That that thing's just very straight down. So we we did eight takes without cutting, and we would just go to the end of the track, and we'd go back to the beginning <laughs> and do it again. We had two cameras going. We're just like go go go. It was the last shot of the night. Uh, it's definitely an exciting, intense moment uh, both it, behind camera and in the movie. So funny that that's not something that was really planned months in advance for that that it is something that was because to me visually i think that's some some of my favorite moments in the movie are right there it's sort of there and obviously the very end of this the morning sky those are probably two of my favorite shots in the film oh that's uh, i love to hear it they're mine as well oh some okay. of mine yeah uh that at the uh, that last shot of the movie is actually um sunset and we oh played it. okay we, but it's it's morning in the movie, but we we actually shot it at sunset. Um, it's just like kind of this last minute idea we had. Well, what if the sun comes up at the end of the movie, right? And the new day has come, um, but we didn't know if we were going to have a sunrise, so we shot the we shot that for for sunset. And those are the tricks you do as a filmmaker. Uh, you know, we talked it out and we're like, we're going to do it now. And we yeah, we we shot it when we had that perfect sky. Oh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's such a wonderful way to end that. And especially the revelation that you just have at the end with that voicemail message on the phone, that's that connection that you're having with that imagery that you could use that image to go multiple directions. It could be something very beautiful, something poignant, something powerful, or something dark, just because of how much of the, the frame is in blackness at that point. And just with that sky that it's, you could project almost anything into that moment. And I think that lands to the ambiguity that you were talking about. Yeah. It's a rebirth. It's a rebirth, right? Yeah. It's a rebirth of, is it the real rebirth of a real person or a new fake persona? You know, is it about new life because there's a new baby in the world? Uh, There's a lot of fun interpretations, I think, to take from it. But I mean, we all go through that in our own ways. I think that the idea of the, true self is something of a myth to some degree we have there's the version of yourself that your co-workers know the version of yourself that your kids know the version of yourself that your spouse knows um your lover whatever that happens to be and then there's the internal way that you see yourself and even that one it none of these are a full picture um I, i think that oftentimes we view ourselves in a way that is disingenuous that we have certain things that we focus on that aren't really the makeup of who we are and our actions and so it's it's complicated and the way that what is the truth of that moment is 
pretty interesting because I, I don't know that you could that sort of rebirth has it always been there or is it something that is just oh well this is the version of me that I'm going to show that's always been there but it's just this is what I'm going to put out to the world for now so yeah it's a great it's it, it's a great way to think about it I think there's versions there's versions of ourselves and iterations of ourselves that that live and die through through yeah. our lives and in particular in that movie you know Joel's character it's how many different versions of himself <laughs> has he been and which one's the most truthful uh and which is the one he's going to live with at the end of the movie and I, that that comes with the sunrise you know I, I don't know that in my humble in my viewing of this I don't think that that part of him or ourselves ever truly dies it's there it's creeping around in the background somewhere it's just whether or not we keep it at bay or not does it come back yeah. to the forefront or is it just hanging out waiting for that moment that we say okay you can come back up and you can take the wheel for a little while so yeah exactly it's creeping around like the devil you know <laughs> uh, yeah. That's and, the movie. yeah exactly and and that that was the i'm glad that it didn't go the direction of the is is this something that is that literal in that sense that it could be um that it is something that is that the internal demon that you're struggling with that it is that part of yourself and that could be projected onto any number of things it doesn't have to be substance abuse alcohol abuse it could be simply um just dealing with things from your past and you're handling them in a way that's not positive you know you could be there's any number of versions of this that i think we could the audience will be able to project themselves into we all have baggage that we come to relationships with and if you have a kid i think you get that moment that there's a there's part of you that you need to let go of the first time that you have a child there's just things that you have to put to the wayside at that point otherwise you're not going to be a good parent and so you kind of have to kill a part of yourself but in that you're finding a part of yourself that you never knew existed, but was probably there the whole time. Yeah. I, I hadn't ever even thought about it that way when it comes to, uh, you know, Joel's, uh, new sound the movie. And I hadn't thought about him having to kill a version of himself, uh, for his family, but that, that makes total sense. And is a, another great interpretation, uh, that could be taken out of the ending. You know, those are the, those are the kind of films, uh, I like to be involved in because they're the ones I like to watch. And even though this, this is like a small contained type of film, ultimately, mm -hmm. um, you know, those, those performances took it, took it to a level where you can walk away and, and continually think about it. And, you know, I, I was glad to have helped capture it. Well, it's, it, there's certain types of films that I really enjoy showing people. Um, there's ones that have this, ending that makes it so i just want to watch the person that i'm watching it with i want to see their face turn when they the revelation comes at the end or there's something where i want them to see this and i want to know what they their take on this was and this is definitely one that i think lends itself to being not only revisited from you know different points in your life i have a feeling that if i revisited this in 10 years maybe i would view this a little bit differently but i want to see this through other people's eyes also i, I want to see this in a theater and walk out and have those conversations with strangers in the lobby this is one of those types of movies which are, yeah those are my favorite movies that i want to have a heated debate with somebody about this that totally doesn't get it and we're both right one of those types of things yeah i mean 
I'm curious to see what people think. I'm curious to see who people have sympathy for. <laughs> well, and yeah, and the, the title of this just kind of to, I, I know we're getting short on time here, but the the song title um, references for movies are ones that it, it's always a, to me, something that can be, it's tricky, especially when you have one that's this well-known, this title, this uh, particular, but it does, I can't think of a title that would work better for this because it actually does go beyond that song that I think would be an immediate thing that people would think of the Rolling Stones song, but there's something here that actually does make sense. It's not something like when I've seen movies that have used a song title and it just doesn't feel like it has anything to do with the actual film here. This actually would be the appropriate title, even if that song didn't exist, probably more so. Yeah. That, that's my hope as well. I, you know, I thought it was a it was a great title to get at the themes of the movie. Um, and there are also themes that run in the song, even though the movie has nothing to do with the song. You know, yeah. it is a story of of the devil and, you know, what the devil's done. And, you know, I think even in the song, he says uh, something like capital. And you're, you're asked to ask those questions of yourselves while you watch this movie when it comes to Nick's character and maybe Joel's character too. Absolutely. And I'm for one, I'm just glad that um, people are reappreciating Nick Cage again. He's been somebody that I've always loved watching and I'm just glad that he's somebody that people have uh, started to reappreciate and they're not taking him for granted. I think like they did for a couple of years there and it's just, he's, really performing at he's doing some of his best work now that he's ever done i mean you know really for me since mandy i don't know if you saw that or not but it was uh there's a bathroom sequence in that that was probably one of the top five movie moments of all time for me um that he just destroys that and it's something that i will see anything that he's in no matter what it is and because he will always be interesting and it's really nice when he does something that it's not just his performance that works that it's the whole film works and this is definitely one of those oh i'm glad to hear it i'm really glad to hear it i you know working working alongside him and, and watching the way that he you know approached his character and approached spending all this time on set and it giving a really unique interpretation to this character was, you know, it was inspiring for sure. And, uh, impressive also. And I, that's why we make movies. That's why I watch him. Um, and he's always been someone that, that I've enjoyed watching and it was, it was fun to share 20 days in the desert with him and Joel and the rest of the team <laughs> and, you know, watch some madness go down in front of camera. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I probably would have done with whatever the material was, you know, take that opportunity. But it's got to be extra nice when you're doing it with something that actually turns out like this, because it's just you got something special here, man. Great. Well, I love to hear it. And uh, I, I appreciate it a lot. No, thank you. And and thank you for reaching out. It was really good to connect with you again. And uh, thank you for uh, giving me the much needed distraction last night, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm glad. I'm glad I could do that for you. And uh, it's it's great talking again and, and catching up since Fire Chasers. Uh, I think I was in India the last time we talked. Uh, <laughs> we, that's oh my god, that's right. Yeah, it, it was yeah. a much more stable internet connection this time around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank God I was I was in the middle of uh, Kolkata uh, the last time we spoke. Um, 
but yeah, uh, you know, you're doing you're doing great stuff. I I stayed uh, in tune with a number of your your interviews over the last oh, number of years, nice. and uh, I'm glad you're you're still doing it. I, I'm I have no interest in stopping anytime soon. So I, I, I love that I'm getting to a place now where I get to reconnect with people and see the stuff they're working on a couple of years later. It's always fun. So I, I hope we can do this again sometime, man. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Wow. Whereabouts are you in, in the world, by the way? Tucson, Arizona. Ah, Tucson. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll have to meet up sometime if I can if I pass through town. Please, absolutely. Thank you for reaching out, man. And yeah, and I'm looking forward to whatever's coming down the pike next, man. Cause I, yeah, just fire chasers to this uh, and to have seen and missing this year. You're, you're doing some, you're all over the place, man. So I, I love it. I, I actually really appreciate that I can't pin you down yet. So it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. I think that's been a, you know, the last thing I'll say, it's definitely been a part of my career is as having you know toes in a bunch of different arenas of, of filmmaking whether it's docs or or you know screen life thrillers or or movies like sympathy for the devil and i i, I like staying a bit experimental and, and trying new things and being in different places so it's been good for me as a as a creative and hopefully i'll do a few more things before the end you will i have no doubt in my mind i feel like you're just ramping up right now man so i'm looking forward to it Thanks, Chris. It's good awesome. talking. You as well. Take care, man. Bye bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
voice crack. 